Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Clive Roslin and Tony Honigberg. Coming up on this show, we'll be speaking to the co-chair of the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation and former MP Sir Eric Pickles. He'll be telling us about the annual dinner for the 45 AIDS Society. We'll also hear from Flora Frank, who recently ran the London Marathon in memory of her late husband, Herbert, who passed away in October. It's actually her 37th full marathon. So we look forward to hearing her story a little later on. Plus, we'll also speak to composer and director Benjamin Till, who will be telling us about 100 Faces, a project in which he very much needs your help on. So please do make sure that you stay tuned for that. And as if all of that wasn't enough, we'll also hear from actor, writer and director Neve Patel, who will be telling us about his play, Knock Knock. But before all of that, with the roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the Middle East flare-up as Israel struck Iranian targets inside Syria, which a spokesman said was one of the broadest aerial operations in recent years. It followed an Iranian rocket attack. The Israeli military said 20 rockets were fired at its positions in the occupied Golan Heights. Iran's deployment of troops in Syria as part of the country's civil war has alarmed Israel. It comes after the United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. The Islamic Republic's president, Hassan Rouhani, immediately issued a statement warning that his country could start enriching uranium more than before in the coming weeks, unless negotiations with countries still in the agreement succeed. President Rouhani said he was sending his foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, to those countries for talks. A suspect has been detained after two young Jewish boys were racially assaulted both physically and verbally. Appeals have been made for witnesses to the attack, which took place last Sunday evening where the North Circular passes between Brent Street and Goldersgreen Road. The Shomrim Neighbourhood Security Group said they need a man to come forward who stopped his vehicle to try and assist the victims, but didn't leave any contact details. Any information can be left on 0300 999 1234. The annual reunion dinner of the Jewish survivor group known as The Boys has taken place at the Hilton Hotel in Wembley. The celebration reunited 18 of these surviving Jewish orphans who were rescued from countries like Poland, Czechoslovakia and Hungary. More than 700, mostly boys, were brought to Britain in 1945, hence the official name of the group, which is the 45 Aid Society. And we'll find out more about the annual dinner when we speak to Sir Eric Pickles later in the show. Lastly, the King David School in a suburb of Birmingham celebrated Israel's 70th Independence Day with blue and white flags and group singing of the Hatikva National Anthem. But most of this school's pupils, 80% in fact, are Muslim, the result of a decades-long depletion in the size of the local Jewish community and growing immigration from South Asia and the Middle East. It seems an unusual setup, but one Muslim mother said she was at first concerned about indoctrination, but is now comfortable with the, as she put it, mild Jewish education. Thank you, Viv. First on the Jewish News this week, we have Richard Ferrer, editor of the Jewish News, and Richard joins us to review the Jewish News this week. What's on the front page, Richard? Well, I can't pretend to be an expert in female rabbonim. However, landmark moment this week for the community. Dina Brower, who has been known for many years as a leading light in the community, has officially become Britain's first female Orthodox rabbi. She took her, or passed her, and I um, forgive me for the pronunciation, Shmicha, or is it Sh- Shmicha? Yeah, I, I knew I was going to get that one wrong. Anyway, she passed it finally after many years of dedication dedicated study 
just a few days ago, and now she is officially a female Orthodox rabbi. Now, quite whether that means she's going to actually be employed in this country as a rabbi, whether a United Synagogue congregation would ever decide to have a, a female leader of the community remains to be seen. In fact, I don't think she even intends for that to be the case. She and her husband, Naftali, who is also a, mm. a very well-respected rabbi in the community, are both off to America in the next couple of weeks to start new lives there, where I'm sure she'll lead a, a Jewish community out in the States. I'm sure. But they I'm have, sure she- haven't they, I think, had an all-women service in which she once before she was a rabbi she took the service mm, I, I do they, remember that but wasn't that special dispensation yeah i think they do they have a number of women's or women's services around but i think uh, in this country as a woman rabbi they won't allow her to have a congregation but in america i think she'll do rather well she's a lovely lady by the way we we've had her on the Jewish views before. Absolutely. We? She's uh, featured on, she even featured on our special live edition that we did a couple of years back now. You remember when you were on our panel, Richard, for the Jewish views live and Dina was very much on that mm. panel. Yeah. Edgeware reform. Certainly someone I think that uh, would do an amazing job as a leader of, of any Jewish community. But sadly, uh, the, the reality of our community is that I'm more likely to be chief rabbi than she is. <laughs> 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 we now, won't go into that one there, an Richard. For you. <laughs> <laughs> what else? have we got right so that's page one it's also quite busy page one because it's eurovision song contest this weekend israel being the favorite on wednesday night they got through their semi-final and are competing this weekend who knows whether you're listening to this on the end of the weekend or the beginning they may already be eurovision champions or or not fingers crossed on there we've also got this extraordinary picture of sir eric pickles and Ed Balls, who uh, obviously was the former Shadow Chancellor, they were at the Boys 45 reunion. This is the, the boys who came over from Europe at the end of the Second World War and resettled here. The reunion takes place every year. Obviously, their numbers are dwindling. And there's this extraordinary image of these two men doing the horror in the middle of this, what looks like a, a fabulous, jovial event. So do pick up a copy to see that picture. And, of course, the big story that we're all talking about, the nuclear deal, which Trump backed out of a few days ago. Does him quitting it mean Israel is safer or, or less safe? So we asked that question this oh, week, too. That's a, that's a leading question to ask there, isn't it? Mm. Do you give an answer? Do you, uh, well, we've got op-eds from both sides a very interesting op-ed from Sir Malcolm Rifkin former defence and foreign secretary in which he says no Israel will not be safer we've got a timeline which goes through the last five or six years from the Obama administration to now and we ask the question whether this means now that the deal is off or whether the EU and Germany you know Germany and Britain and, and partners can actually salvage it Malcolm Rifkin says that Israel will be worse off that it's a safeguarding deal and that slowing down the process is better than having no stops whatsoever so the wheels are off that now and obviously it's going to play into the hardliners in Tehran we make the point this week of looking back to 2001 a very famous speech that Bibi gave in 2001 saying that Saddam Hussein had nuclear weapons and that he had to be disarmed otherwise it would spell disaster for the Middle East and the rest of the world now Clearly, that was incorrect. So whether this is a case, to, as we put in our leaders, as history repeating itself and he's got it wrong and his instincts are incorrect again, we don't know. I'm sure as many of our listeners will be for the deal as against. 
Well, there you go. But having said that, of course, we did. We do have to take it to surface value that Mark Regev, when we spoke to him on last week's programme, reassured us that Prime Minister Netanyahu and the special forces behind the operation to mm. unearth the nuclear programme that Iran supposedly has got in place, they reckon they've got several thousand pieces of evidence to prove that he is. So let's assume hypothetically, that Iran is carrying on its nuclear program, even with this deal, is it going to make much of a difference? Unfortunately, I think it's one of those things any time is going to be able to tell. It's it's no secret. Iran's up to no good in in Yemen. In the Lebanese elections last week, they they took a a controlling power on Israel's northern border in Syria, Mm. Hezbollah. It's absolutely no no surprise whatsoever that their agenda is not hidden now of course the shackles are off and the hardliners will want to hit back at the white house be interesting to see i see you've got another headline there was this a different class yeah this is an extraordinary story i I didn't know quite how many or quite how few jews there are in our second city in birmingham there's less than two thousand in the whole of Britain's second largest city. However, it does have one of the largest Jewish schools in the country, King David's School. Uh, I'm not familiar with Birmingham, really, let alone the school. Well, would you believe it? The school is thriving and only 20% of the students there are Jewish. 80% are Muslim. How amazing, isn't it? That's fascinating. Yes, isn't it? They had a celebration for Israel's 70th and they had the blue and white flags and the Hatikva and most of the participants had scarves on and, and were Muslims. And it's just interesting how we always celebrate faith schools. We say the standard of faith schools yeah. is so good, the teaching quality, the exam pass rate, just great quality education. And that comes from a, a Jewish school in the heart of Birmingham. So now three quarters or more of the, of the students' faculty at that school are, are Muslim. It's an extraordinary story and, and a really interesting feature that, yeah, I'd love, I'd love Ari just to have a look at on page 10 this week. Well, I, do, I do know Birmingham and I know of this particular school and I remember when they first started to take in some Muslim children for education because the parents wanted, as you said, a good level of education and this was the best school in Birmingham to give those children the best level of education. Unfortunately, the the community has dwindled. I don't know if there are any other Jewish schools in, in Birmingham, but the community itself has dwindled and consequently the intake multiplies with the new intake of Muslim children coming in, but it's still a top school for results. But one would also hope as well, though, that on a more serious note, that this actually goes some way to almost, I suppose, expelling some of the myths that unfortunately we know that both the Muslim community and Jewish community think about each other. Hopefully this might be a great way to try and deal with some of those problems that say the next generation are better prepared for knowing exactly what the Jewish community believes and what they are about. Equally, in the same way, hopefully, it will spread to the Jewish community getting a better understanding of the Muslim community. This is, this is almost like having a cross-communal school, school for two religions, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, Brilliant. isolation and segregation are always, I think, the, the risk that you run when you have a faith school that mm. just has one denomination. I don't think there will be any young people better qualified to do interfaith work and to have real understanding of other cultures and, than the Muslim and Jewish children at this school today. Absolutely. Well, the two religions, in fact, are so similar in so many ways that's that to think of that actually should get on really well. We live in hope. 
Unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But editor Richard Ferrer, thank you very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, the annual dinner for the 45 Aid Society, which took place earlier on in the week. Senior politicians, celebrities and Holocaust survivors gathered on Monday evening at the annual reunion dinner of the Jewish survivor group The Boys. To tell us more about it was one of the attendees and the co-chair of the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation. I am delighted to say Sir Eric Pickles joins us on The Jewish Fuse. Sir Eric, first and foremost, perhaps you could start by just reminding us, for anyone who may not be completely aware, what the 45 Aid Society actually is. Well, shortly after the end of the Second World War, United Kingdom offered to take, I think it was a thousand young people, people who'd been in the concentration camps, take them to United Kingdom to resettle, recuperate. I think in the end they could only find 700 odd numbers. And this is a reunion of the people that came across in 1945. Some of them went to Windermere, and uh, I attended that celebration a couple of years back, and some went down into the West Country. So, Eric, would you mind if I ask, where did your interest in the Holocaust and working with survivors first come from? Well, it's a play, which you miss a survivor, you kind of know why you're doing it. And you see that life, that vitality, and that determination uh, not to forget. So it's, it's been a pleasure to work with them and, you know, to become part of their friends and part of their friendship and, and support. And it's not just the survivors themselves. It's the family network. Mm-hmm. It's their children and their grandchildren. That makes it uh, an even uh, more pleasurable experience. I mean, it's a, it was a pretty lively occasion. It was uh, started off with initial a serious and sad remembrance, but it really got motoring and lots of Jewish chances, which uh, from my perspective as non-Jewish always struck me as being a very muscular form of the hokey-cokey. Everyone was joining, yeah? so, uh, survivors, uh, young kids, it was just great. Well, I have to tell you, we've seen video evidence of your dance skills, Sir Eric, and I have to say I am mightily impressed. I shall hope you are. No reasonable <laughs> offer refused. <laughs> It's quite amazing how almost all of these people that came across, that were brought across to the UK, actually made a success of their lives. And you mentioned the families anyway. So they just got up and and did and contributed back to society. I think that's kind of uh, remarkable. And it also just demonstrates beyond doubt the enormous loss to places like Hungary and Poland and France and Germany. That sort of removal of a, a vibrant Jewish community meant this country is a better place because of the survivors that came across. They led successful lives, they brought prosperity, but they also brought an awful lot of love into this country. Let's get back to the actual evening itself, shall we? What What's... What was the evening like and how did it unfold? And because this is obviously an annual occurrence. Well, I've been going, uh, I suppose, uh, five or six years. It's something that's regularly in the calendar. It's, it's something you actually look forward 
to seeing. And each one's been slightly different. Last year, it was a tribute to Ben Hofkart's uh, years before. There's always, there's always something. There's a, an interview, a speech, a film. There's always music. But it's like most really good parties. It's about networking, meeting up with people, saying hello. Folks, I suspect that they only see once a year. Families that they only see once a year. Everybody gathered in one spot. So it's got a very nice atmosphere. There is something that I think troubles quite a lot of individuals who have a particular interest in the Holocaust and survivors in general. And that is, of course, the inevitability that as the years go by, sadly, Holocaust survivors are only getting fewer. They're not getting greater. And with an organization such as the 45 Aid Society, that is obviously instrumental in its founding by Holocaust survivors. What, what about the future? What, what are your concerns of the future once these survivors are regrettably and incredibly sadly no longer with us? Well, the, the leadership of the 45 group has association, has gone on to the next generation, and they're the ones that are doing the fundraising. They're the ones that are doing the organising, and I think the 45s will survive the last of the survivors, which I hope is a, a long time from now, eventually going. And it's a bit like the it's a bit like the Holocaust. Holocaust does not end with the death of the last person that experienced it. The Holocaust is something that's going to be with us forever. As someone such as yourself who does take a keen interest in the Holocaust, I can only assume that you also see the immense positivity that comes out of government schemes such as the new memorial and learning centre that's to be built by the Palace of Westminster. Do you think that this country's attitude towards the Holocaust is right yet, or have we still got more work to do? Well, it's, it's interesting. I think I read something by Simon Sharma a few years back, and he talked about how history was formed. And he said that when the last person that experienced the French Revolution died, that history then did a reassessment of the importance of the French Revolution and saw it through slightly different eyes. I think we are on the cusp of that with regard to the Holocaust. So in a way, the memorials and the museums that are currently being erected in Europe, there's a brand new one in Milan, there's a, a new one being built in uh, Romania, Babashar is uh, a new one in, in, uh, in the Ukraine, and arts, which I think will set out a, a very important message. Now, we've clearly got the Imperial War Museum, and they're about to have a, a very big refit, and from what I've seen in those plans, that looks like it's going to be absolutely fantastic. So we don't want to be in competition with that. We want to take a slightly different perspective. And what we will be doing is looking through it through British eyes, looking at the show through British eyes. And both myself and Ed Balls are very determined that this will not be a sugary view of our involvement, but a warts and all. We will see the good things that we did, but we'll also see the bad things that we did actually just as important. We'll see the indifferent things that we did. 
Well, it is curious. I mean, the fact that you've mentioned Ed Balls, of course, there will be some who recognise that maybe in Parliament you two didn't necessarily see eye to eye. But we're delighted that you are seeing eye to eye on such a worthwhile subject as the Holocaust. That's a very easy guy to get on with. It's not that you don't feel those passions in the House of Commons. It's not like like you you play acting. And uh, he's been most robust about me in the past. And I've been most robust about, about him. But listen, you've got to put those things aside. This project depends to a large extent on me and him being single-minded, putting aside all political advantage and working for the interests of of bringing this together. You know, I've been Secretary of State. uh, He's been Secretary of State. I've been successful inside the Conservative Party. He's been successful inside the Labour Party. But I don't doubt, not for a second, that this is the most important thing that either of us will do. Sir Eric Pickles, co-chair of the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Jewish Views this week. Thank you. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email us on studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And we have in front of us Benjamin Till, the composer and director, who's currently working on a project where he's looking for a British-Jewish person born every year between 1918 and 2017. How many of them have you found so far? Well, it's, it's very difficult because I found many, many people, many of whom are born in the same year. 1925 is an amazing year. Who'd have thought? But I've, I, I think I've got about sort of 20 years left that I have no one for and, and at least 80 years where I've got at least one person. Where are the years, the sparse years then? There's a few, as you might expect, in the very early days. So 1918 to 1924 are sparse. So the 1930s, as are those who were born in the middle of the Second World War. I haven't too many of those. And very oddly, millennials as well, 1999, the year 2000, both fairly, fairly low on people. I would like to find the first Jewish person born in the year 2000, actually. That must be documented somewhere. What led you to this whole idea? I have a very complicated relationship with Judaism. I was born in the Midlands without realizing that my mother's mother was Jewish. And I found myself as a child utterly obsessed with Jewish culture without actually realizing that technically I was Jewish. And in fact, I found one of my early compositions the other day, which I wrote when I was uh, 14, all of which were named after my favorite Jewish festivals, none of which I ever had a chance to, to celebrate. And then when I left drama school, I started working with a a well-known Jewish playwright called Arnold Wesker. And we collaborated for the best part of 20 years. And he mentored me until his death two years ago. And he always used to say to me, oh, no, no goy has melodies like yours. (laughs) And so I started looking into my heritage. And there were all sorts of stories all the way through my childhood, like that my mother's grandmother never stepped foot in a church and that 
my grandmother once went to a Methodist minister in floods of tears to make a confession about something. And so, and she used to talk about her cousins in Brick Lane who were costumers. So, you know, the, the, the clues were probably there. And then when you start to look into the family tree, you realise that that's, that's what's going on along the mother's line. When did you realise that you were Jewish? Well, probably, I mean, it's a slow dawning realisation. I mean, technically speaking, five, six years ago, but in the last few years, I've been very much exploring that side of me. I sing in a shul. I sing at New West End Mm. in the choir there. And this is just an extension of that, really. It's just sort of seeing what this community is all about that I've been on the outside of for for So So you really feel that you are a Jew? Were you brought up as a Christian, in fact? I wasn't. I was brought up as an atheist, um, bizarrely. And my father, we were asked at school what religion we were, and I I had no idea because I'd never been into a church. And so they said, well, go home and ask your dad. And so I went home and asked my dad, and he said, we're heathens. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. So I went back and said, yes, we're heathens. (laughs) So, yes, (laughs) do I feel Jewish? I feel like a slight imposter, I feel like there are things that I don't know anything about. I got called up in in shul for the first time and I didn't even know how to sort of, I didn't know what my father's name was. Name should be, yes, Mm. in Hebrew. So, you know, that it's it's things like that, that my dad's Welsh (laughs) and not Jewish at all. In general, do you think you have been welcomed by the community that you've joined? I think there's a tendency for Jewish people to want people to be Jewish, actually. And I think that's, that's very lovely. And I certainly, I don't feel that anyone's ever sort of looked at me as, as, as being odd. <laughs> Do you have children of your own? No, I'm a, a gay man. So you don't have that problem then in, in wondering what, whether your children should be Jewish or not Jewish? No, no, that's, uh, that's never been sort of part of it. And I've always been aware of the fact that my ancestral line, my brother is gay as well. And so actually the, 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 the till name stops with us and that, that brings with it its own set of responsibilities, mm. one of which is alleviated slightly by my desire to create art that lives beyond my own life. So all this you're doing is actually, you hope, is going to be there and to be remembered, so you'll be remembered as a Jew or as part of the Jewish, the Jewish feel. Yes, I, I certainly would feel very honoured if that were the case. I think it would be, you know, I, I I sort of feel a lot of the time like I'm standing at the the feet of giants, particularly in my field as a as a composer, specifically a composer of musical theatre. You know, I mean, I, I can't really name that many non-Jewish musical theatre composers, certainly in terms of the top flight. And so I think that that I would be very proud to be regarded as as Jewish. Back to the actual project itself. It's 100 Faces, is that what it's actually called? Yes. You said earlier on that you have got a fair number of people from certain years. How are you actually deciding who makes the final cut? If you only want one person to represent each year, what's the criteria you're looking for? The interesting thing for me, I mean, and I think this is this is one of the 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 reasons why I wanted to make this film is that I feel as as a sort of an outsider that the outsider's view of the Jewish community, if you like, is 
it's quite stereotyped actually and one of the things i realized when i you know when i became more active is that you know for example i think anyone from the outside would think that orthodox meant ringlets and and hats and then cut to me singing in an orthodox shawl on on saturdays where i haven't seen a you know ringlets and hats or maybe a little bit but you know and so i think there is a misconception about jewish people and i would like to blast those doors open and so part of my journey is to look for the diversity within the community and unfortunately when you open that particular pandora's box you start to realize right okay i need a mazorti person i need liberal i need you know i need uh, reform i need to look into the ultra orthodox you know and and then you need to look at the concept of feeling Jewish and yet not being religious in any way, shape or form. You need to look at conversions. You need to look at people whose grandparents may have died at Auschwitz, but they're not technically mm. Jewish because their father's parents. Jewish. So it, it's, it, it's a very, very interesting thing. And then, of course, you get into wanting to represent gay Jewish people, trans Jewish people, black Jewish people, Indian Jewish people, of which I found, you know, mm. many, many examples. And to me, that turns into a hugely interesting tapestry of, of one single community, which I really hope will challenge people's preconceptions. It's going to take you an awfully long time to do this, though, isn't it? I mean, 100 people from 1918 onwards, it's almost it's mind-blowing. It has certainly proved to be a fairly complicated jigsaw, and... You know, I mean, the, the the joy of the piece is it's a piece about aging. So it starts with a one-year-old child, and with each new shot, the person is a year older than the one before. So by the time you reach the 100-year-old, you'll have seen an entire lifetime of faces flashing past you in 10 minutes with six seconds with each person. And actually, that is wonderful for a viewer because firstly, they look to the person who's born in their year. So they look to compare themselves with, with whoever it is that's representing. Do I look younger? Do I look older? Do they look more successful than me? And then, and then when you get towards the end, actually what's wonderful is you stop fearing aging as much because by their very nature, the 90-year-olds, the people in their 90s who I'm selecting are people who feel very with it, who feel very agile and, and, and excited about life. So I think it will be a life-affirming and very beautiful film. And I should say it's all done to music. So there's a piece of classical music that will run all the way through and some people will sing and some people will speak. Thank you very much. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. You know, just listening to Benjamin there, the way that he's describing this, let's be honest, this very ambitious project and I think hugely respectable project as well because I always personally find it reassuring that whenever anyone makes any sort of effort, and we see this quite a lot with Holocaust survivors as well, any sort of effort to preserve Judaism or to actually re-educate and re-inform people of what Judaism is actually about, this is the kind of project that would achieve that. I entirely agree with you. In fact, the whole thing I find quite a magic idea and I can't wait to see or hear what he's going to do. What fascinated me was he didn't know he was Jewish. And if he had never found out, this thing would never have got off the ground and it would never happen. So there's this, this great 
Jewish link again, isn't there? You know, we all, we all have it. We, we all know about it, but a lot of people don't know. But the Jewish. extraordinary thing is that people always do in his situation. He's not the first one I've met who had no idea they were Jewish for a long time, but they always find out somehow. And then they always embrace it. Yes. I wonder whether or not, though, it does sometimes take somebody who is, and I don't want to say on the outside looking in because Benjamin is Jewish. Mm. Okay, let's get that Mm. very, very clear. He is Jewish, even though he might not have been brought up as such. But I wonder if it, it goes to show that our community can be quite insular. We can always look inside. And sometimes it takes somebody with that outside perspective who maybe doesn't have the twisted views that unfortunately an awful lot of non-Jewish people tend to have about the community to actually say, no, do you know what? The Jews aren't the way that they are perceived a lot of the time. And actually, this is what they're like. So that's what I find truly amazing about this is it actually has taken somebody who, although is Jewish, not necessarily brought up as Jewish. And didn't know he was Jewish. That's the thing. And didn't know to be able to turn around and say, no, I'm going to correct the world's skewed view on Judaism. It's an amazing thought. And also, I should point out at this stage as well, by the way, that if anybody does want to get involved with Benjamin's project, if you think that you might be able to plug the gap in one of the years that he spoke of just now, then you can always go to our website for the details. If you go to jewishviews.co.uk, you will find that there is a, a photo of Benjamin on the homepage, which actually links through to a YouTube video. That YouTube video explains a bit more about the project and how you can get in contact with him. By the way, if you do want to get in contact Contact with him directly. His email address, which he has absolutely given us permission to hand out to you, is ben at benjamintill.com. And that is T I double L. Can I also say that don't think, oh, I was born in 1942. He's probably got someone from that year. I won't bother. Do bother because. He might have someone, but actually, he might prefer your you than someone <laughs> else. We don't, we don't know, do we? You know, we don't know how many people he he's got. Very short of getting people in the in the war years. Wasn't yeah, it? he war said years, war yes. years. He also said millennials. Mm. He was quite short of, and also the early years as well. But I, the other thing as well that I was rather hoping that this video might achieve in some weird way when it is finished is it will it will help our community to recognize that we are quite diverse. And actually, sometimes what happens is that there are communities within the community who don't recognize that other communities exist. So I hope that this will go some way to actually re-educating them as well. We are equally as diverse as every other community. Absolutely. But but people don't realize. People don't realize, and worse, Jews don't realize Mm -hmm. either. So it's truly, it's an amazing project to think about. Incredible. It certainly is. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can do that by emailing studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And in the studio with us is Flora Frank. Now, Flora recently ran the London Marathon in memory of her late husband, Herbert, who died in October. Flora has run several marathons. I think this one was your 37th full marathon. And she took part in her first marathon at the age of 53. Now, do we ask how old you are, Flora? Yes, you can. I'm in my 70s. (laughs) And you're looking extremely well. 
Thank you. I know why you ran this marathon, but what made you start running the marathons all those years ago? Well, it's a very strange story. I always taught at Cheder at Hebrew classes on a Sunday morning, and my brothers, Ephraim and Modi, used to run marathons. And of course, I always gave them a very nice donation, being my brothers. But they were always running for strange causes. I will not mention them because I do not want to offend anybody. But I felt, look, it's nice to have a charity for children, cancer, anything like that. And they couldn't get one because it's very difficult to find a place. So I found them a place with Norwood and Emuna. Norwood, as you know, is a marvelous organization that helps troubled families. I put it that way because time is of the essence. Amazing. Sterling work, professional, caring and everything. And Emunah is another such organization in Israel for also underprivileged, abused families, you know, parents on drugs. Both amazing organizations and they ran. And Norwood, it was Ravenswood at that time, gave me a place. And I said, I didn't ask for a place. If I run, I'll have a heart attack. I haven't, I've always been sporty, but I, I can't do this. I knew what my brothers were putting into it. And I didn't have that commitment, you know, running 40 miles a week leading up. I couldn't do that. They said, in other words, I think the lady doth protest too much. You know, they didn't accept it. They said, you're always running in and out. What do you matter? What's the matter with you? So I took it on. It was six weeks before a marathon and I was quite frightened. I went to see my doctor. Of course, they can't tell you very much unless you have a proper heart test and whatever else. But he said, look, just walk it. You've got six weeks to go. And my, one of my brothers said, they'll laugh at you because being religious, I wear, wear a skirt and i got quite longish sleeves. And, you know, they said, they're going to look at you. And I said, no, they're not. If I'm and Moddy, it was more my brother Moddy. You know, I've seen the fun runners, the little that I watched of it, because as I said, I was always teaching at the Hebrew, at the Hebrew classes. And I was fine. In fact, one year they thought I was the dinner lady because I had a white peak cap and a white <laughs> top and a white skirt with a bin bag wrapped around my waist because I was worried in case it would rain. So one little boy said, look, mum, she's dressed as the, up as the dinner lady. So that was funny. That was very funny. And that's what made me do the marathon. I raised a lot of money the first year. I did a very good time. And every year it's been going up and up and up. And I, tr and I nearly raised almost 15,000 pounds this year. It's 13,000 already, but I've still got a lot more money coming in. Muzzles off. That's a fantastic amount yeah. of money to raise. I mean, just from one marathon, that's a fantastic amount of money to raise. Mm. Now, speaking as someone myself who has never run a marathon before, and I, I'm sorry, but I, I get out of breath running a bath, never mind running a marathon. <laughs> but how would you describe the feeling? Because to me, it's mind-blowing. The thought of running or even fast walking over 20-something miles, is it 26 miles or 26.2 it sounds to me like an, a mini torture in some way so what does it what is it like when you're actually running it well it's amazing first of all i don't push myself i power walk and i can do that thank god but the crowds and the people who come out of their homes the chesed the kindness it's shown it's just it makes me cry i actually get a lump in my throat and i cry every year because it's like a, a mini yom kippur everybody's at one with each other there's no anti-semitism there's no racism there's who cares about the color your religion whether you're rich or you're poor we all get along together we all help each other unless you're one of these really you know runners who just can't waste a second they won't stop for you there are some of them but you know we stop i pick up banana peels from the floor i tell people watch this there's orange peels coming up because i know what to expect when the oranges are giving out but the people who come out of their homes and they give you cut you know i can't eat most of the stuff because i don't know if it's kosher i'm being honest about that and i'm proud about the fact but i say thank you darling i've got my own and i point to my bag you know and but how sweet of you and how kind of you and they give me fives and and the people lining, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. It's just amazing. 
And it's a privilege to run a marathon, just to be with the crowds and the supporters and the people who come out of their houses. And I want to thank them very much because it helps us. It's a big you know, bonus having that sort of uh, support. And what would you say compared to when you ran your first marathon compared to now? Has it got easier as the marathons have gone on? Or is it because now you know what to expect? It almost gets a bit harder. Well, it, no, it, it was always easy because I power walk. I don't run and I don't train a lot because I do not have the time to train. That's, and then as I get That's got not older, advice to other marathon runners. Yes, and as way. I got older, I realised, <laughs> no, I realised at my age, I'm talking about an older person, that I'm going, if I want to carry on, and I do carry on because I've raised over 400 and about 25,000 pounds by now in all the marathons that if I want to continue I shouldn't train too much because it can damage your knees my two brothers one did three hours and 10 seconds which is almost professional he was gutted for that 10 seconds he can't even do a marathon now and the wow. other brother who did three hours and 20 something minutes he can't do a marathon because they gave it their very best and they're younger than me One's nearly 10 years younger than me. And so what, do your, what do your family make of your marathon efforts? Well, they love it. They think it's amazing, you know, and they, they, they appreciate the charities. And so, and they're very proud. How well, long does your power walk take you? Well, it took from five hours, 20 minutes. Sometimes I can do over six hours this year. And normally I do about six hours, just under six hours. But this year it took me an hour longer. It took me just over seven hours. Because I purposefully walked slowly because I knew of the heat mm. and somebody had knocked into my knee. It's a long story. And thank God it was nothing to do with walking. I'm telling all my sponsors out there that it wasn't overdoing anything. It wasn't, no, see, I told you. It was somebody actually knocked my knee and cricked it, if, if I can use that word. So I had to take it slowly for that reason. And thank God the marathon, the walking is so healthy. It seemed to write my, put it right. I don't have a problem with it, thank God. We, we spoke, you mentioned your two brothers, but what did Herbert think about this when you um, first started doing the marathon well, and the subsequent years you carried on doing Herbert it? used to make jokes. But I think he, I, not I think, I know he was very proud. He used to make jokes and say, what are you doing, Herbert? Are you going to be lining the routes? And I'll have a nice sleep and I'll get there to the, at the end. And Nor would always give me a grandstand ticket. So he used to get to the uh, finish about half an hour before. And he was always very proud and it was very hard doing the Jerusalem half marathon. <clears throat> and this, that was my very first half marathon for various reasons. And even harder doing the London marathon because he was always there mm. and he wasn't there this year. But my family came to Israel and my sons and one of my grandsons, Jake, Richard and Gideon and Jake, they came for the London Marathon with friends. So it was very, very comforting. Your family were there. And you know what? There's actually a very nice photo of you with your sons and your grandson yes. that is actually on our website promoting you talking to us on this yes. week's episode. And it yeah. looks like you've got great support around you. For I do have. And they support me also, for, you know, monetary support as well as emotional and physical, which is very important. And all the friends, of course, that sponsor you. As I, you. I have to thank them very much because if it wasn't for them... They should be interviewed, not me. They're the heroes because if it wasn't for my supporters, my punters, whatever one calls them, I wouldn't be here, would I? Well, after 37 marathons, they must be practically bankrupt now, thanks <laughs> to you. <laughs> I think they are. <laughs> Do you find they're the same people that sponsor you year in, year out? Yes, and I always try and find new sponsors. I like to find them. But it's amazing how people are stalwarts and they're so loyal. And every year it takes me a long time to write my letters because I'm always thanking them. I can't take it for granted. You know, it's so nice mm. of them. I say thank you for your continued and your generous support because however much they give, it's still kind. And I have to tell you that the actual running the marathon is an experience that it's indescribable. 
what would you say to people going forward that would like to do the marathon that probably haven't or, or, or have thought that I can't do it, but I'd like to raise money? What would you tell them? I would say you can do it. Where there's a will, there's a way. I had not trained. The, only, the last race I had done was a mother's race, and I always had to come first. It was like 100 meters. And I hadn't run from one year to the next. And why I didn't have a heart attack, I have to thank God. Because I said, I've got to be first. I don't know why. It was so competitive. And I'm not competitive with the marathon. And I was always first. But it, I you know, when I'd finished, I was almost out of breath. <laughs> so it, you know, I say anybody can do it. Well, I mustn't say that. I'm very grateful. If you're in reasonably good health, as long as you get doctor's advice and you're sensible and you don't overdo it and your body can tell you when to stop, anybody can do it. Well, I would just like to say, I would just like to say that I hope, having heard everything you've said and having met you, I hope that you're going to do at least another 37 months. Oh, I hope so, please, God. <laughs> I don't know. It all depends from up there. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure, Flora, you will carry on going forward. You'll do lots more. Flora Frank, thank you very much for joining us on The Jewish Views. My pleasure. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And now, if you are a, a theatrical kind of person, you may want to listen to the next item because our very own Kate Fulton does love a bit of theatre. I must admit, so do I. However, Kate has recently been to see a play called Knock Knock, which is the new production by one Neve Petel. And he's an actor, writer and director. Anyway, Kate went along to go and watch this production, which is based on the experiences of parents for having children in the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force. Anyway, I don't think I need to explain any more about it. Here's what happened when Kate spoke to Neve. I've just seen the most amazing show called Knock Knock by Neve Petel, and I'm about to talk to him. The, the audience, I think, is just completely spellbound. Neve, you must be on your knees having just given a performance like I've never seen. Tell us a bit about your show. Knock Knock was written as part of my MA project at Mountain View Academy of Theatre Arts. I was researching about solo performances and I was looking for material to what, what to write about and then just <laughs> uh, there was this a private joke between me and, and my, my friend from Israel, Maya Levy. She's also the artistic advisor of the show and the co-director. And she was dating this guy named Elad and I was mocking her on the phone pretending to be Elad's mother just as a joke. And then those little monologues that I improvised, improvised on the phone to Maya about this, this mother, they became like a whole life story of this woman and that she has a son. I discovered that she has a son and that she lost him to the army. And this, those little monologues became like the, the whole play, one hour play. And so you fleshed out these, it's like you've lived this character that doesn't exist and you've created a woman, Ilad's mother. Do we know her name? Ilana. Ilana. So Ilana is the is the mother of a soldier. She's a single mother. And you make, with the sparest, most minimal stage, I, I wouldn't even call them sort of, it, it's extraordinary, what you've managed to create this world. And how did you, th there was all sorts of sound effects. How did you do that? I believe that in a one-man show, the audience are are there to work too, not just the actor. And that's why I was trying within the writing and within the directing together with Maya and within the design together with Rianne and White 
to give the audience as many hints and clues and stimulations for them to imagine and complete the, the picture in their minds. It's part of the deal in a one-man show because you have to keep them engaged. So if I leave, them, leave enough hints and clues for them, for the audience to complete the, the, the image in, in their minds, then we get the magic. And it truly was magical. I have to say that I'm not just saying that, but for our listeners who won't, won't sort of uh, be able to see it in their mind's eye, you've created this home where presumably this must go on quite a lot in Israel, this sort of, this sort of waiting for a knock. What is it, this part of the army that, uh, that, that, do, the, that do the knocks? First of all, the army is, in, is inextricably intertwined in our lives in Israel. You, you breathe it from the moment you were born because your parents were soldiers and people keep going to the army for Miluim until they're 47 men and women just before. And you see soldiers on the streets and when you are in the high school, you're, you're getting prepared by the teachers to... Everyone talks about what you're going to do in the army. And once you're done with the army and you're going to apply for a job, even though it's illegal, people will ask you, what, have you, what did you do in the army before they get you to this, to this job? So the army is, in, is just part of our lives. And there is a department, a special department in the army, the Nivgaim, and they go to... The first thing that they do is to knock on the door and inform the family if, if there's been a casualty. But then it's only the beginning of the process because then they will support this family forever, basically, and try to give them as much shoulder to, to cry on or support to, to how to build the life, their life again. So we had a little window into what it must be like to be a mother in, with, with a child in the army and you managed to show with again with very little props this child growing up and how loved and how adored and there is a very very dark side that you managed to create how did you do that I'm talking particularly about these strange the, the, the robotics there are mime sequences and, and physical theater bits that are intertwined in within the between in between the scenes I chose to do that first because it's a medium that I like as as an actor as a performer I like doing this I like using my voice and my and my and my body and I really wanted to find a way to create this this parallel dimension of of all those fears and thoughts and images from from the battlefield that are there are no words to describe them so that's why I, I chose uh, mime and physical theater. And some music, which you hum. Yeah, I hum a song, a Russian song, which was rewritten in Hebrew. It's called Boy Ima, Come Mama. And it's about the, this eternal bond between a mother and, and a child. Actor, writer and director Neve Petel speaking to The Jewish Views' Kate Fulton there. If you would like more information, then you can always go to our website as well, jewishviews.co.uk. Now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. In the portion Bahar, the Torah describes the radical institution of the sabbatical year. As a bar mitzvah boy in my congregation, Jonah, recently said, it's a reset. The boundaries of what we thought was our own property are removed and everybody shares the produce of the land in the sabbatical year. This is a great encounter, 
a meeting between groups who are so often kept apart. The rich can't protect their land for their own benefit, but the poor are welcome to share the produce. In this country, the programme Rich House, Poor House tells us that there's an over a factor of 10 in differential between incomes. And across the world, if anything, it is even more so. In the sabbatical year, rich and poor meet, and hopefully the wealthy gain a greater insight and more compassion into what's happening to others who may be their neighbours, but they don't otherwise see on the same patch of land. Similarly, the gare, the refugee, the asylum seeker, the outsider meets the person who's settled on the land. They encounter one another because both are entitled to the gleanings and to the fruit of the land in that year and they are made welcome in a way they have not before and whether you're a citizen or not citizen, you're equal before God. And animals, nature and humankind encounter each other also because the produce of the sabbatical year must be to your cattle and to the wild animals and the wild animals allowed to enter and to eat of what the field brings forth. And this is another form of alienation in our society. We're too separate from nature around us. We consider ourselves often a species distinct and don't understand our dependence and interdependence with the animals, domestic and wild, the birds, the insects that make the world fertile for us to enjoy it. We don't keep the sabbatical year in all its rigours, but it has much to teach us and we should look to how we can incorporate its lessons in our lives. Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. All that we have to do is thank our guests, Sir Eric Pickles, telling us about the 45 Aid Society annual dinner, to Benjamin Till, composer and director. Remember, if you would like to be a part of 100 Faces, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, for more information on that. Thank you also to Flora Frank, who just finished running her incredible 37th marathon telling us about her inspirational story to Neve Patel talking to Kate Fulton and of course we mustn't forget to thank you at home for listening and thanks also goes to our producer Sue Greenberg if you would like to listen to any of the previous episodes or indeed this episode of the Jewish Views again all you have to do is go to our website jewishviews.co.uk where you will find a listen again facility the Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News but from me Bill Dave. Me, Clive Roslin. And Tony Honigberg. Thank you very much indeed for listening to this episode of The Jewish Views. Do join us again next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>